My wife and I met at Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, a wonderful institution founded by Dwight L. Moody, who was a very well-known evangelist in the late 1800s, and he also founded Moody Church. Now, in the early 70s, Moody had kind of an odd rule for their students. They couldn't have a mustache or a beard, and I think it was probably a response to the 60s and wanting to distance themselves from anything associated with that. But the unusual thing is that they had this big oil painting of the founder. These uh, students would go by and they'd make jokes because this was the picture that was hanging there. Uh, he couldn't be enrolled as a student in the 70s because he had a mustache and he had a beard. <laughs> That's what we call legalism. Now, Moody's a great institution, and sometimes it can be legalistic, and all of us can be legalistic in the way we approach our lives. The idea of legalism is uh, focusing on external rules that people should follow. And some people get really convicted about something, and they say, okay, here's a command of Scripture or my interpretation of that command, like wearing a mustache and beard, that's wrong. And therefore, I make that a litmus test for the spiritual maturity of other people. So I, of course, do the right thing. And when other people, you know, don't do it, then I know that they must not be as holy as I am. But it's motivated out of pride. It's motivated out of self-righteousness. Uh, where what Jesus Christ calls for in the Gospels is a heart relationship, not a rules relationship, but a heart relationship with Him, to realize that we're sinners, to realize how much we need Him, and to walk in humility each day, dependent upon Him. And as we do that, we are naturally empowered, we're naturally fueled, to want to obey his commands, to want to do what he wants us to do. Not just because there are rules to be kept, but because there are things that we want to do to please our Savior. So we're going to look at that as we turn to Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there in your notes. I always encourage you to bring your Bibles to mark them up as you learn and study Scripture. Matthew chapter 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Now, we first of all have to look at the Sabbath because that is a theme that we see throughout this particular passage. So let's uh, think about the Sabbath here. The Jewish Sabbath, which Orthodox Jews still practice, is from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And the idea is that you don't do any work, as seen in the Ten Commandments. Honoring the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. 
Bottom line, nobody does any work. The day of rest. Inspired by how God created the world. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we see the principle that Jesus, or that God, the Trinity, set up for us in creation, that we need to set aside a day to rest. We just can't work and work and work and work. We need to recharge our batteries. We need to recalibrate our souls with the truth of God's Word. We need to be restored. And if you just keep working day after day after day, eventually you're going to get burned out and all kinds of other things are going to happen to you. And as we look into the New Testament, we see that this was continued. The Sabbath day was not, again, uh, honored like it was in the Old Testament because the law had been completed. Uh, but Christians met on Sunday. That's when they worshiped the Lord, and we continue that. We also have a Saturday night service we encourage you to come to, especially over the summer, as you might have something going on on Sunday. But, but this is a time that really is the highlight of your Sabbath day. This is the time when we get together as a family of believers, people who care about one another and worship the Lord. This is a time when we sing praises to Him. This is when we study His Word. This is when we interact with one another and when we again let the Spirit work in our hearts as He prepares us for a new week. That's why I continue to talk about the importance of making this day important and making the worship experience, the corporate worship experience, a priority in your life because we see it throughout Scripture. It's something that God expects us to do because it brings so many benefits to us. And most importantly, we come on His behalf to worship Him. Well, that's the idea of the Sabbath. And I would encourage you to think about that in your own life. Do you have a day where you recharge? Do you have a day where you set other things aside and take time to rest and uh, reflect upon your week and spend time with God? Well, that's the idea of a Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees, uh, they were all about external rules because they were driven by pride. They thought they could do it all by themselves. They were self-righteous. They said, we don't need God to be righteous. We can be self-righteous on our own. So if you have that type of orientation, the number of rules that are found in the Old Testament law uh, are not enough. So uh, they created the Talmud, the Jewish law, uh, which added even more laws to the Sabbath and to other areas of life because if they had more laws, they could prove how much more self-righteous they were. So there are 24 chapters that were written just about the Sabbath. Man-written laws by religious teachers. And so uh, everybody was expected to follow these laws. <laughs> they were really crazy. For example, traveling on the Sabbath. That's, that's a lot of work if you travel, so you shouldn't travel. So you couldn't go more than 3,000 feet. But they worked their way around this by saying, okay, if you planted something 6,000 feet away and you had to water, well, you could go that far. And if you, you know, put a, a piece of wood over 
uh, an alley per se. That's kind of like an entrance. So that could be another house of yours. So you go another 3,000 feet, you know. I mean, it was really silly. Uh, of course, you couldn't prepare any food. In fact, I was talking to somebody after the service who knew an Orthodox uh, Jew uh, who followed the Sabbath rules. So what they can do on Friday is they can put something in the microwave and then uh, they can't prepare any food on the Sabbath, but it's okay to hit the microwave button and get it started. Okay, that's okay, you know, because they just can take it out and it's like you know, ready-made uh, food. So again, people practice these things uh, still today. There's all types of foods you can't eat on uh, the Sabbath. No sex on the Sabbath. That's a bummer. Um, and... <laughs> And then a lot of other things, I mean, for example, you can throw a ball up in the air and catch it with one hand, but you can't throw it up in the air and catch it with another hand. That's work. Go figure. All right? We spend a lot of time thinking this stuff out. And then if you're a student, you couldn't carry a book, or you might be tempted to read it. If you're a woman, you couldn't carry a needle, or you might be tempted to sew. I know all you women just love to sew. <laughs> uh, if you were a woman, you couldn't look in a mirror. You might be tempted to pull a gray hair, and that would be uh, work. If you were a scribe, you couldn't carry a writing instrument. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And this is what they did, because the Pharisees' motivation was to show everybody how they kept all these laws, but it was an incredible burden to everybody else. And the thing is, is that they were so zealous about this. Remember Paul? He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said that he kept every law, every Pharisaical law as well as every biblical law in, in terms of external laws, things that you did. You couldn't see inside the heart or the mind, and that was the problem. But again, these Pharisees, they, they were very, very religious but the problem was, it was all the externals, all the things that you did. It had nothing to do with the heart or the mind. And that's why Jesus Christ said, you've heard it said from the scriptures, do not commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust after a woman. You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, if you hate a person in your mind, you've murdered them. So he was getting to the heart of the matter of the Pharisaical law. You can do all the right things, but if your heart and your mind are sinful, if they're corrupt, uh, that is not impressing God. And that's what Jesus Christ called the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. And so many people have grown up in churches that have been pharisaical. They say you got to do all these things. Now, you can have a lot of other things going on in your life, but as long as you do all these things, that's a legalistic, pharisaical, rules, relationship, orientation to life. And I tell you what, people who get started with that check out real quickly because it just doesn't satisfy. So that's very important to understand. So let's look at this passage. Very interesting. At this time, or that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. 
So they were walking through these fields. They didn't have many roads back in that day, so they would walk through fields. You have grain on every side. and So they would snap off ahead of the grain, and they maybe would uh, crush it with their hand and get down to the very kernel, and the chaff fell away, and they would eat the kernel. Now, why did they do this? Well, because they didn't have any snack places uh, back then. They didn't have Subway, they didn't have McDonald's, Wendy's, and they didn't have Jimmy John's. Ah, anybody a fan of Jimmy John's? Like, wow, you know, their, their, their uh, slogan is uh, freaky fast. That's freaky good, I'll tell you that right now. Holy cats, that bread, oh, mayonnaise, and all those things that are bad for you. Now get the number 10 if you ever go to Jimmy John's. Get the number 10. That's my recommendation, and uh, yeah, it's a great, uh, I digress. But the point being is there was no Jimmy John's back then, and so you read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. So there weren't any places to eat, so if you're traveling along, it's okay to drop in somebody's field and, you know, just... Take an appropriate sack, not take a sickle and start to harvest or anything like that. Then uh, we look in Exodus 34 and says, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest the Sabbath. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Now, the Pharisees made their own law out of this. So you must not harvest. So they said, you cannot even snack like the Bible allows on the Sabbath. That was their own law. So the disciples weren't breaking uh, the commands found in Scripture, but they were breaking the Pharisaical law. So that's why we see in Matthew 12, 1 and 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is lawful in the Sabbath. Now, when we start to look at this, we realize the burden that was put upon the people of Israel with all of these laws. I mean, if you start to read through all of these laws, you're thinking, Who wants to live? This kind of life, the Sabbath was not a day of rest. It was a day of work, keeping all of these laws. And, of course, the people didn't keep all these laws, maybe the big ones, but there's no way anybody could do it other than the Pharisees who devoted their full-time energies to obeying every particular scriptural command as well as all the commands, of course, that they had made up. And that's why people were so discouraged with their faith in God, their relationship with God, because it was all just a bunch of rules. And Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, many of you have been comforted by that verse as you've gone through difficult times. And yeah, it is a very wonderful verse about how Jesus wants us to wrap his arms around us and give us rest. But specifically in the context of this passage, what he's saying is, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by the law. Burdened by especially the Pharisaical law. Now, you need to understand the purpose of the law was to show our sinfulness. God didn't give the people of Israel the law so that they would keep it perfectly. No, he gave them the law so they would know that they needed the forgiveness of God. And ultimately, of course, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
that was the purpose of the law. The Pharisees had it all messed up. They said, no, we want more and more laws in order to show that we can do it. They're full of pride and self-righteousness, and God was, you've got it all wrong. That's what he was saying. So Jesus says, hey, listen, I've got a new way to do life. I've got a new way to walk with God. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word yoke means a school of teaching. Now, the, the Pharisees had their school of teaching, which was very burdensome. And Jesus Christ had his school of teaching, which we read in the Gospels, which was not burdensome. So he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn what I tell you. Learn what I explain to you about what it is to have a vital relationship with God. For I am gentle and humble in heart. How refreshing was that to the first century Jew? I mean, here these Pharisees were not gentle. They were harsh. They were rigid. They were always condemning. They are always saying, you guys are not getting it right. Look at us. Follow our example. We are living it in the right way. And other people are saying, we can't do that. That's impossible because the law shows their sin. And Jesus Christ saying, hey, listen, I'm gentle with you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to encourage you. And humble in heart. Well, the Pharisees weren't humble in any way, right? But Jesus Christ was humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You see, rest for your souls is not in following rules. Rest for your souls is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in a vital relationship with Him. If you start out focusing on the rules, you're just going to get frustrated. But if you start out with a relationship with Jesus Christ, getting to know Him, experience His grace and His love and His mercy and all that He has for you, you're going to be naturally motivated by love in order to live for Him. You're going to have the motivation and the power to do that. It's not going to be something that's impossible because you can't do it. And I want to speak to you, uh, especially those of you who grew up in church traditions that were very rule-oriented. Very rule-oriented. There's a lot of churches... Uh, that are like that. And there are a lot of expectations, and uh, you went to Sunday school, confirmation, whatever, and they kept giving you rules and rules and rules and rules, and maybe once you realized uh, your confirmation, you said, I'm out of here. This is no way to live. Who would ever want to live this way? Because you didn't understand the relationship with Jesus Christ. All you had was the rules, and the rules, well, they just looked restrictive. But, again, the relationship with Jesus Christ would have transformed everything if you had been that age because you realized how much he loved you and you realized how you would want to serve him because of that. So for those of you who grew up in that orientation, you really need to ask the Holy Spirit to get inside your soul and to really dig deep. And this is, takes years to kind of get this out of your system. I mean, we're rules, pride-oriented anyway, and when it's reinforced when you're growing up or by going to a particular church for a long time, 
you think, hey, my relationship with God is all about rules, and God looks at me and he judges me because I'm not keeping his rules. Uh, well, again, that is not the essence of the Christian faith. The essence of the Christian faith is realizing that you're unworthy, that you are a sinner. Speaking of sinners, uh, I'll tell you about a sinner, my wife. Uh, she's sitting right here. So I'm not going to tell any stories at this time, but, yeah, she, she's a sinner. Um, but you know what? I'm a bigger sinner. <laughs> uh, we, we had a long week. You, you know how that goes, right? Stressed out. I mean, all kinds of things going on. We were both tired this weekend, and, you know, I said something I shouldn't have said, did something I shouldn't have done, and I sinned against her, and, and I apologized, and she sinned against me, and whatever. You know, I mean, let's face it. We are sinners, and you get two sinners together? I mean, come on, that's a recipe for disaster, <laughs> okay? If you, if you don't have Jesus Christ in the middle of that, no matter... No, no wonder we struggle so much in our marriages because we're sinners, you know? And, and but, but what keeps our marriage strong is that Jesus Christ is at the center of it. And, and when we do sin against each other, you know, and, and we're led by the Spirit, you know, we say, hey, and I blew it. You know, I wasn't looking. You know, I wasn't making a priority out of your needs. And I shouldn't have said that and all these things. And I'm sorry for hurting you. That's the oil, the oil of grace and love and forgiveness that makes a marital relationship healthy. And I tell you what, if you've gone a month and if you haven't apologized to your spouse for something you did that was sinful and stupid, and there's a good chance you might be in denial about your sinfulness. Okay? I'll just lay it on the line. All right? I mean, if, if you cannot think of anything, uh, you need to talk to your spouse. Okay? And maybe you've been perfect. Praise God. <laughs> But maybe your spouse will be able to think of things. And usually, the way we think is we have a category of sins we can commit against our spouse, but there's a lot of more sins that were committed against our spouse that are in that, cate that are in that category because that's legalism. We say, okay, if I treat my spouse this way, then everything's cool. But we're not thinking about the other sin that is so subtle. Selfishness in a relationship is the greatest sin, isn't it? We're out for ourselves. We're not looking out for the needs of our spouse. We're not putting them first putting ourselves first. That's so subtle, and that might not be something that we think, oh, I shouldn't apologize about that, but we've got to be more sensitive to the Spirit and ask the Spirit to speak to us and empower us in loving our spouse. Or you can apply this to a friendship or whatever relationship you might have. But the point being is we're sinful. And, and friends, you will not experience the Christian life as it was intended to be until you realize the depth of your sinfulness and how it saturates everything you do and that you go to God every day and the grace that saved you, you continue to call upon that. You can continue to call, call upon Jesus Christ's power and you say, God, I am weak. I am broken. I am inadequate today. I confess any sin of pride that makes me think anything else. And I need you today. I need you to love people. I need you to counter my sinful desires and, and do what you want me to do. And then the next day you wake up and you say the same thing. And slowly you mature in Christ. Now certainly there, there's a place for God's commands, right? We need to follow God's commands. We talk about that on a weekly basis. But 
You don't want to get into this legalistic type of orientation with God's commands and, and have this litmus test. Because, again, what you do is you have a list of things that you say, okay, these are the things I need to do, but you never get in the inside of what really is going on in your heart. And that's what we need uh, to consider very closely. Well, Jesus goes on to say, uh, in response to this question about his disciples snacking out, having breakfast there uh, in, the, in the field, he, he said to uh, these uh, Pharisees, uh, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he takes the Pharisees' number one hero, David. They love David. I mean, David still had a high popularity rating hundreds and hundreds of years after he died. <laughs> and he was their hero. So let's talk about David. When David was fleeing from Saul, he stopped by the tabernacle. It was a permanent, a temporary place uh, where God resided until they built the temple. And he went in there, and there was no food for he and his men. So what he did was he was allowed to take the showbread. There were 12 loaves of bread that were made on a weekly basis, and they stayed out all week long on the table there in the tabernacle to represent the presence of God. At the end of the week, the priests ate them, and only the priests were to eat them. That was the command of God. But there was an exception made by God in this situation because David had a need. So God made an exception. So, okay, you go ahead and eat that showbread. Eat those 12 loaves of bread. Take them with you. So he's saying, hey, listen, you know, there's exceptions made by God in certain situations in relationship to people who are in need. And that's the thing that he continued to hammer away with the Pharisees. Is you guys need to, to, to know what mercy is. You don't understand it. Then we see in Matthew 12, verse 5. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? Now, what's the deal with that? Well, on the Sabbath you weren't supposed to do any work. Well, this can't be my Sabbath, you know. I'm working, I enjoy ministering, but this is not resting uh, for me, so I take Monday off, and that's uh, my Sabbath. But he's saying here the priests in the temple, they have to work on the Sabbath. Uh, they have to break the commands of the Sabbath. They have to light the fire. Shouldn't do that on the Sabbath, light a fire. They have to lift the animal up onto the altar. Shouldn't be doing that. No lifting on the Sabbath. And you need to kill the animal. No killing of animals on the Sabbath. But the point is that God allowed that exception because these men need to do this in order to serve the needs of the people. There was mercy as a part of this. And then he hits it right in the head. Uh, or no, there's one other thing he says. He says, I tell you that one uh, greater than the temple is here. Now that's a powerful statement. Now Matthew 12, we really see a turn in the Gospel of Matthew, a turning point when the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders decide to kill Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. But he starts to make some statements here that really get under their collar. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple was the focus of worship of the Jewish people because God resided in the temple. And to say that someone was greater than the temple, well, that was blasphemy. 
No one's greater than the temple because God is in the temple. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ said. So their temperature started to rise in terms of their anger. Then we go to the key problem that they had. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You would not have condemned the innocent. This is a quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. So he says, if you had known, like, you don't know, all right? <laughs> uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. That's the disciples. You wouldn't have condemned these guys for having a snack out in the cornfield or out in the grain field. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So the context of that particular verse, when the word sacrifice is used sometimes in the Old Testament, it's speaking of all the law, the idea of following the law and the sacrificial system. But God desires much more than following all those rules, mercy, compassion, grace upon other people. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did not have. They did not have mercy toward anybody. They could care less about anybody. They were only concerned about themselves. They wanted to be, you know, uh, the most spiritual people in town. They want other people just to look at them and say, I can't believe those men. They are so spiritual. They're so religious. And it was all about them. They were narcissists, basically. They didn't care about anybody. But that's why they were missing the boat. Because God is all about mercy. He's all about grace. He's all about love. And he wants people to experience that. That's why he gave David the bread. That's why he let the priests work in order to minister to people. And Jesus Christ is saying, you guys don't get it. You don't understand the goodness and the love of God. You are just beating the people down with your religious teaching and rules, and you could care less about them. Friends, that's what we need to take to heart. It's not about the rules. Now, I want to make one caveat here. Obviously, we want to follow the commands in Scripture. But we want to do it in a heart relationship type of way. So if I'm looking at other people, all right, and uh, I'm evaluating uh, their lives. I want to do it out of love. Now, we all evaluate each other's spiritual life. That's one of our responsibilities is to confront each other about our sin and things of that nature. But if I look down on you and saying, you're not meeting my litmus test for spiritual maturity and you're not as good as me, that's judgment that's uh, being a Pharisee, right? But what I need to do if I'm looking down at a younger Christian, I need just to say, you know, I have so much compassion for this person, I just want to help them to grow closer to the Lord. That's the difference between being motivated out of pride, where you look down and judge a person because uh, they're not up to your standards, and love, where you show compassion to that person and helping them to grow in their relationship with God. Well, you know, when we look at uh, the frustration that we have uh, with sin, uh, we look at Romans chapter 7. And Paul talks about going back and forth and trying to do the right thing, but he can't. And we read in Matthew 7, 24 and 25, it says, What a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the good news that we have. Yeah, the law points out our sin. The law can't save us because we can't meet the law standards. But when we embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, that is when we're given the freedom. Hey, let's look at our memory verse, Psalm 119.11 for June. I encourage you to memorize a verse along with us every uh, month. Because I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I want you to know God's word because of the reason stated here. It will keep you uh, from sin. Now, if I have a pharisaical view of this, if I put a litmus test on it, and I say, okay, anybody who's memorizing these verses, they're good in my book. So I go up to one of you and say, okay, tell me one of the verses you've learned this uh, year. You know, we put them on a slide. We put them in the newsletter. I mean, just tell me one verse. Say, wow, I tried, Dan, but, you know, my memory's shot, and uh, I really can't think of it right now. And fail. Fail in my book. You know, work on it if you really want to be like me. All right? Now, that is a pharisaical attitude. That is a legalistic attitude because you don't measure up to my standards. I got a litmus test for you. And, and friends, we're all legalistic, okay? We're all legalistic. We all have litmus tests for people. It might be uh, what entertainment uh, we're involved in or entertainment we watch, movies we go to, TV shows we watch. You know, you're sitting down with somebody and you hear that they saw a particular movie or you hear they watch a particular TV show. You can be legalistic about that. Now, it could be that this, this show is not really appropriate. It could be really bad. And maybe if you had the chance, you would, again, talk to them about that. But just to, to look at them and say, oh, you are so much lower than I. I, mean, I would never watch that show. I would never go to that movie. I would never be involved in that activity. It's that superiority and that pride rather than you having that love relationship with God, which is generating a compassion for other people and saying, okay, you know, is there an opportunity for me to help this person to grow? I mean, maybe not. Maybe you're not in a relationship where you can confront them. It just wouldn't be the most helpful thing. <laughs> But your, your desire should be to help them to grow further in their spiritual journey, not to look down on them because they don't measure up. And this applies to so many different things. Have you ever looked at a person's car and say, you know, a Christian shouldn't own that type of car or own that type of house or have that type of luxury item? That's legalism. You don't know their heart. You don't know what's going on. But we, we like to do that because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It, it feels like, hey, you know, we really are uh, devoted to God, and they're not. Uh, you know, and they translate, and, you know, they're not praying enough. They're not evangelizing enough. And many times it results from your spiritual gift. Like if you have the spiritual gift of uh, prayer, and you don't see people praying enough, you can look down on those people. Well, you got the spiritual gift. You know, you're super-powered. <laughs> so <laughs> stop judging other people, right? And just help them to grow. We can always fall into that, that trap. Now, uh, Jesus Christ really blows them away. We see in this next verse, Matthew 12, 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
All this builds up to this, all right? It starts out with snacking in the grain field. And Jesus Christ lays out an argument for them. And he said, listen, I just want to let you know I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who created the Sabbath. I am the one who interprets the Sabbath. I am the one who overrules the Sabbath. I am the one who completes the Sabbath. The Sabbath is mine, and I can do anything I want with it because I'm God. Oh, they were burning now. Okay, all right. Jesus Christ is laying out the truth for them. And, of course, they are rejecting it. And so I assume they're all on their way to the synagogue. So they go into the synagogue, we see in verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You have hundreds of people. It's a Sabbath celebration, and hundreds of people are looking on, and they say, We're going to trick Christ. We're going to get him to do or say something that people are going to know that he is blaspheming, that he's claiming to be God. So, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, their particular law that they had written was, if a person was dying, then you can help them. But if they're not dying, you shouldn't help them on the Sabbath. All right? Wait till Sunday to help them. <laughs> if you're going to heal them, wait. All right? You don't want to improve anybody's life on the Sabbath. <laughs> All right? So they're trying to trap him here. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So what does Christ say in the next passage, verse 11? He goes on to say, He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, there was another rule on the Sabbath that you couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. I don't know how much a dried fig weighs, but it's probably not very much. <laughs> So the idea here is, you know, the reality, just the way he states this in the context of it, they did this because the sheep, that was their, you know, uh, their possession. That was very valuable to them. So they're going to get it out. So I don't know if they got 100 guys, you know, and that uh, came up to 100 dry fakes or something. Who knows, you know. But they rationalized their way to save the sheep. And then he drives it home. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? You'll rescue a sheep, but you won't help this man. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Mercy triumphs over your legalism. And then we see the beauty of Jesus Christ's power in verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restore just as sound as the other everybody's just looking on jesus christ's amazing love for this man and the grace that he had for him and how did the uh, pharisees respond but the pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill jesus now think about this for a moment what was their issue in the beginning of the passage these guys were snacking in the grain field and they were all upset about that and at the end of the passage they're plotting to murder someone I mean is that twisted or what is that spiritual blindness or what friends 
when we get into a rules relationship with God, we get so twisted and we're so sinful in our mind and our heart and the things we think, but as long as we're doing the right stuff, we're okay. It's wrong. And Jesus condemned it over and over and over again in the Gospels. He took the Pharisees and the religious leaders to the cleaners. <laughs> he told them exactly what he thought of them. I want to go into a time of uh, reflection at this time. And I want us just to sit and think here, okay, and pray. Why don't you bow your heads uh, with me? And uh, let's take some time to think about what we've studied uh, this morning. Okay, let's pray together. Um, I want you to think about this. Maybe you came in here today and you came from a tradition that was all about rules. And that's all you've known all your life. Being religious, pleasing God, is all about following rules. But you never have experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know what it's like to pray to Jesus on a daily basis. You don't know what it's like to be fully forgiven. Because that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. In order to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And now all we have to do is accept that free gift of salvation. And He'll restore us and He'll give us a spiritual power that we need to deal with our sinfulness. And He'll continue to fill us with grace on a daily basis. He'll fill us with power. He'll help us to experience a Christian life in the way that it was intended. A life of freedom. A life of love. A life of mercy. To others, a life celebrating a wonderful creator who chose to reconcile us through his son. So I'm going to ask those of you who never made that decision to follow Jesus Christ to come forward. I want you to sit here in the front row. We have some counselors that are going to come up at this time. And uh, what they'll do is they'll just talk with you briefly and take you to our prayer center. Or they can tell you more about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been thinking about this for a long time. And you just haven't made that decision. You haven't pulled the trigger. You haven't decided to put your full faith in Jesus Christ. You're still depending upon your good works. And obviously, as we pointed out today, they don't get you to heaven. They don't get you anywhere. It's only faith in Jesus Christ. So. Now, if you feel that, I'd, I'd just encourage you to come up right now, just sit in this first row, and uh, again, Lori and Diane Fowler would like to spend just a moment with you and uh, tell you how you can become a Christ follower. Uh, again, think about that. You can come at any time uh, to walk down, and as I go on and talk about other challenges, feel free to walk down here. I know it's kind of scary, uh, but again, uh, this is most important decision you can make in your life. And you need to profess that before men. You need to tell others that you're serious about changing your life. Uh, I know uh, Satan wants to keep you from making that decision, but I pray that you would uh, ask God to help you to make that decision and to step forward in that way. For others of you who already have a relationship with Christ, I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart this 
week and at this time. Because friends, we are all legalistic. We all pigeonhole people. We're all filled with false pride. Uh, I just ask that uh, you would devote yourself this week to really seeking the Lord out and asking the Holy Spirit to do uh, a surgery on you and to look throughout your soul and look for areas where you are looking down on others with superiority and pride and not compassion and love. And if you're the type of person who just has like ten rules to follow to be a good Christian, and you got all kinds of sinful attitudes and sinful desires that you're entertaining in your heart, it's time to repent. It's time to realize that you're a whitewashed tomb, that uh, again, you look good on the outside, but uh, you know that things are so messed up on the inside. You need to confess your sin to God, and you need to ask Him to empower you to deal with those sins. And stop playing church, stop playing the Christian role, and start to really live in it uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, you just need to get out of your denial that everything's okay with you and God spiritually. And finally, for those of you who uh, just really feel um, that uh, God is a judge and God is always looking down on you and because of that you're condemning yourself all the time. And you don't, you don't know the grace of God. You, you don't understand that. You don't understand how much God loves you and the mercy that he wants to show you. I just, uh, I pray that you would spend this summer just picking out passages in Scripture to dwell upon that focus on how much God cares for you and loves you. And the grace that he wants to just pour into your life on a daily basis and uh, again to move Satan out of his accusatory role always accusing you of things you've done and why you're not good enough for this or that and focus on how if you've made that decision to follow Christ uh, you are pure and holy before him you're a child of God you're sitting at the right hand of God uh, you're in Christ and you need to remember that because uh, your sinful nature, um, what you've been taught in the past, and Satan are trying to take you down another path and keep you uh, sidelined in relationship to God. You need to develop a closer daily walk with God this summer. I just want to challenge everybody to do that. That, that summertime hopefully is a little slower than other times in your life. And just concentrate on your relationship with God this summer. We're so much into doing. We're so much in, you know, doing this for God, doing that for God. And that's good. That's okay. But if we overdo it, it's not good. There needs to be a balance between the being and the doing. There needs to be a focus on cultivating a deeper relationship with God. Just spending time with Him, worshiping with worship music, listening to Him, reading books that will help you to get to know Him better. Uh, Bible, meditation, whatever it takes. Just say, God, I want to get to know you better as a friend this summer. I don't want to be a ministry machine. I, I don't you know, want to do things the way I've done in the past. I want to cultivate a deeper relationship with you and, and come to fully appreciate you. And, and then, Lord, out of that uh, beautiful relationship is naturally going to flow a desire to love 
and serve you. So, pray about these things this week. Spend some time in Matthew 12. Continue to read the book of Matthew. And let the Spirit speak to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of meditation, Lord. I pray that your Spirit would point out the sin in our life. At the same time, I pray that we would focus on the grace that God has given us, how you're so quick to forgive and so quick to restore us. And I pray that uh, we would uh, daily walk with you and have a closer and closer relationship. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if we could have our ushers come forward at this time, we're going to gather our love gifts to God. And we took a collection for the Japan tragedy that took place uh, with the tsunamis and the nuclear plants. And uh, you guys gave over $4,500. Let's give praise to God for that, okay? $4,500. Yeah. And they went to uh, our missionaries, and there's a specific uh, program called CRASH, and they they got on the ground, and they delivered the necessities that people need when you don't have anything. They delivered blankets and kerosene and water and food and all the basics that were needed. And your money went directly to helping those people. And that's what a church is about. It's helping people in need, showing the love of Christ. And so again, thank you uh, for your ministry.